is. So, what does Judaism say about? We have all kinds of discussions about interesting topics and how Judaism relates to them. I'm Rabbi Rick Fox, and with me, as always, is the enigmatic Rabbi Mayer Beer. So, what does Judaism say about education? Rabbi Beer, how are you doing today? Fantastic. You were educated in the Jewish system. You grew up in, in Jewish school. I, I, went to public, I went to public school my whole life. I went to the Wyoming Middle School in Cincinnati, Ohio, Wyoming High School in Wyoming, Ohio. You know, I, I'm born and bred public school over here. Are, are you insinuating there are schools that don't charge tuition? Is, is there <laughs> such a thing? <laughs> my school cost property tax. But yes. You know, oh, I thought property tax went to some, something else, like, not, like plowing the streets where it snows. It, one would, no. All right. That's... I'm now being educated. But, but, you, but you grew <laughs> up in this system. You grew up in, in the Jewish schools. Where, where does this come from? Where does it start? Okay, so this is a piece of Talmud, which we can go over some of the basic parameters, which are really education rules that I think are useful in any given education system. It gives a little history of the Jewish education system, and this is a something like 2,000-year-old information, which is really relevant. And there's a couple of little subtleties which I like to focus on in this passage, which I think will give us some new insight and new responsibility as educators, as parents, and as influencers. We all influence our surroundings to an extent. And by viewing ourselves as having this educational role in a society, you know, we'll have a, you know, we'll have some new tip, we'll have some new uh, tips hopefully from this from this discussion. So the Talmud writes in the. Originally, the way it worked is that people would educate their children. You know, there was, you know, homeschooling. And there was a fellow by the name of Yeshub and Gamla who instituted an education system in some early period of the Talmud. The original, in, the original I guess, idea that, or, or creation or organization that was created was that people would bring their children to Jerusalem which was a center of Jewish life, it was the capital of the country, and there would be a certain amount of education that would happen there. We'll focus on this in a second. Eventually, they expanded the system. Every region would have school systems, much Wait, as we so have today. It was, like, it was almost like a boarding school? You would like ship them out? So I, I think it wasn't so much a boarding school as much as parents would bring their children there for a period of time. So there would be this like camp, so to speak, where, where people would just come from all over the country and they'd have these... I'd assume it wasn't constant because, you know, how are you going to run your farm or your, your blacksmith shop or whatever you do? But they'd have these, like, festivals, so to speak, of education in Jerusalem specifically. And eventually they created a full-blown school system. And the age of education was 16 or 17. And they realized, and this is a really interesting language, that if there were teachers who would annoy the teenagers, who would get them angry, probably because of some lacking on the teachers, and inevitably, it's really hard to have a system with perfect teachers that the kids would just leave. 16 or 17-year-old kids are old enough to make their own decisions, and they're not going to stick around if the teachers aren't perfect. Always remember that school systems are, gonna, are never going to be 100% perfect. So they, they, and they, didn't, and they didn't have truancy laws back then. It wasn't, it wasn't going, hey, where's Goldstein? Hey, you've been truant Truancy today. laws for 17-year-olds. <laughs> they worked that well. Exactly. If you have a license and a car and a credit card, you know. See you later. Yeah, I'm taking this mule right back to where I came from. We're gonna we're gonna eat some grapes <laughs> over in uh, you know Kisaria. Exactly. <laughs> Pop open a couple of uh, flasks of you know brandy wine and mead. There you go. 
Eventually, they expand the school system to children from the age of six or seven, which is really mirrors what we have now. First grade is six or seven. That's when we really start, you know, the education system. Yeah, prior to that, it's really daycare, right? To be yeah, honest. by and large. Yeah. You know, there's a little bit of learning, but by and large, school as we know it starts at six or seven. The Talmud then gives up a whole then gives a whole list of, of parameters for what, what classrooms should look like. The maximum classroom size should not exceed twenty five. You can have a so it says that already two thousand years ago. You shouldn't yeah. have more than twenty five. This is codified in the Shulchan Aruch. Right. Uh, it, it says that you can have if you have more than that, you can have a teacher's assistant up to forty. Once you get to fifty, you need to divide the class into parallel classes. Rules: Who can be a teacher? It's a whole bunch of interesting little little details. Just how, you know, like qualifications for being teachers. But to focus on the first part of the Talmud. Why Jerusalem? Like, what's, what's in Jerusalem? So the Tosfos, which is the medieval, which is a collection of medieval com- uh, commentators on the side written in the margin of the Talmud, writes that going to Jerusalem is a place where they would see some of the leading figures of Judaism. And exposure to people who are really doing it right has an incredible effect on children, really on anyone. But certainly young children have that impression, greatness, right? This is, this is on the negative side, this is really the, the sports figure analogy, why that's so captivating for young kids is they're so inspired by the greatness that they see in the sports figures, but they don't realize that that was 50 hours a week in the shed shooting the free throw. They just see the greatness. Same with musicians, same with this and that. So over here we're saying for the positive side, positive influence, seeing the greatness of a wonderful sage was going to inspire the youngsters to to want to grow and learn. Yeah, that's 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 the point. And, you know, sometimes as, as educators, you, you, you transmit information. But transmitting information is one way to help people develop, but experiences is another way to help people develop. So if you give a child an experience, an exposure to something that's very meaningful, that often can mean more in that one exposure than hundreds of hours of classroom teaching. Again, I, th- I think that that's a really interesting point. You know, experiential learning, and I think the Montessori developed this as, you know, the last 50 years to try and grab a little of this. But I think that in, in the home, I think I see a lot of that by the Shabbat table. You know, I've been to your home for Shabbat. There's a lot of education going on at your Shabbat table. Mine as well. You know, the kids are around. We're sort of collecting what's been going on. They have that beautiful experience of my parents care about what I'm learning and, and, it's, and it's important and they're the star of the show. So we're seeing that that take that concept and put it into the system itself. That sounds a lot better than did you, you know, what grade did you get? Did you get a 71 or a 72 on your on your American history report. Why wasn't it a B plus? So if I'm understanding you correctly, it's combine both information, but also make the information more experiential so that it, it is now in an environment which it's easier to incorporate information. Yeah, it's like, whoa, sounds amazing. So the, the uh, Ravaran Cutler, who was the founder of the Lakewood Yeshiva, which I attended, writes that there were leading, there were leading sages of various eras which were so influential just from their presence. The Vilna Gon, the Ari, great figures in, in Jewish history who simply had this like influence on their surrounding, not because they spent a whole lot of time directly meeting with people. They might have done a lot of private studying or been quiet people, but just their existence had an effect. There were these really high-level people operating at a super high level, and that really motivates people. I have a friend of mine who's a musician, so maybe you can relate to this. And he went to New England Conservatory, has a degree in, in, in he's a jazz major. And I asked him once, like, his father, I think, is tone deaf. Like, what got you into music? You didn't have this family background, which is often how people develop an interest in certain right. things. Certainly in, in my home growing up, my father was in a rock band. His father was in a jazz band. So 
So I was in a jazz rock band, obviously. And <laughs> Hybrid. <laughs> but that's where, it, that's where it came from, sure. So he told me he remembers watching the, one of the award shows that Miles Davis performed on yeah. as a little kid. And he just watched Miles Davis get on stage and perform. And he was just so blown away. Now, he's not actually a trumpeter, but he's a guitarist. But he was just so like moved by watching the best that he became a musician. Wow. And that, and that can happen. Like you can see a person be like, a six-year-old can have that kind of conviction. An eight-year-old, a 10-year-old. They don't necessarily even recognize how much they've been moved, but they have been. Next part I want to focus on is that age. So the, the Talmud says originally they were educating people at the age of 16 or 17. They realized that if the teachers weren't perfect, the kids were just not buying in. So they lowered or they expanded the school system to lower the age until six or seven. And the young children that age are not really going to rebel unless the teacher is really awful. But, you know, if there's a couple of gaps, then that can, you know, that, 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 that can be like just passed through, passed over. There is a, there's a book called This Is My God. This is, the author is a, a fellow by the name of Herman Wook, who was actually an observant Jew, who wrote Pulitzer Prize winning novels. It was a playwright, very big in the 50s and 60s. Actually just passed away recently. He lived to, I think, 104 so he, he wrote a book in, I think, 1959 called This Is My God, which is one of the first books written to, to an American audience, for an American audience, describing traditional Judaism. Wow. And he writes the following about education. So he writes, Judaism presents steep difficulties, intellectual and practical, but for all that it is on balance a delight, a path of integrity and of pleasure. For children born Jews, the faith taught authentically is without question a master resource of mental health and personal force. It's giving this kind of like epilogue. And then he ends up with a point. And he writes, on the point of the children, I want to pause. I have heard people justify not training Ju children in Judaism because, as they say, we don't want to warp them. When they grow up, they can make their own choice. But this view dictates the most total warping they can condemn a, chi a child to. They warp him to a lifetime of rationalizing his ignorance. What adult sits down among the school children to learn the Hebrew alphabet, the Torah and the ways of Jewry? It is the easiest thing in the world to drop one's early religious training. It is sheer mountain climbing to regain ground lost in childhood. It ought to occur to such parents that they may be wrong about the faith, that, may, that it makes no sense to cement their children in their attitude of denial. Because if you don't educate children, what are the chances that a 17-year-old is going to be not distracted enough to actually get a quality education? Less than zero. And that was talking about 2,000 years ago where they didn't have that magical device and all the shows and all the scores and all the highlights and the whole thing right there in the palm of your hand. So if you want to really give kids a choice, you need to give them two equal options. If one option is years and years of difficult work that children have mastered when they're six or seven, learning an alphabet, learning a language, you're creating almost insurmountable difficulties for them to, for them to even have the ability to weigh the two sides. There's no question. I mean, for me, myself, I, I learned how to read Hebrew at 25 years old. Now, can I, can I tell you what an Aleph and a Bet, sure. Okay, and I had a bar mitzvah and I, read, and, I, and, I, and I remember somehow read the Torah, but I literally could not tell you the letters. I had no idea what they were. At 25 years old, uh, I, I had to surmount a lot to decide that I was going to take a few months off from work initially to go to learn in yeshiva in Israel to learn the alphabet, to learn how to read, to learn what this faith is all about, and really integrate myself. I gave myself six months. I ended up staying for five years. That's another story. Another podcast. But, but exactly. But that I love how you're saying insurmountable because it was so scary 
to humble myself and say, one second, I'm Wharton educated, I'm successful, I'm living in New York, I'm a, I was a top musician at the time, I had a lot of gigs, and to say, one second, I am so ignorant was a tremendous challenge. And of course, for my own children, I'm trying to get that done at five, four, five, six, seven, so that they don't have to overcome that challenge. They'll have other challenges, believe And then me. they can make easy decisions. Absolutely. So this is, th that age of education is, is something which is really important and critical. And that lowering from 16 to 17 to six or seven, once again, the bad teachers that the Talmud writes about, if you're not in an absolutely perfect environment, it's really hard to pick up these types of things when you're older. There's so many basic skills. Judaism is not something you pick up in a two-hour crash course. Right. It's a lot of learning. There's a lot to it. Right. I'm not saying there isn't value in a two-hour course. Or a 20-minute podcast. Or a 20-minute podcast. <laughs> but it's a conversation starter. Exactly. So I'm going to end off with one more idea. The, um, the Torah, in the end of the book of Leviticus, writes, just when the specific mitzvot, specific commandments given to the Kohanim, to the Jewish priests, the Torah writes, Vayomar Hashem Moshe, and God spoke to Moshe, saying, Emor al Kohanim, speak to the Kohanim. Now the word Emor, is significant because generally speaking, when the Torah gives mitzvot, gives over commandments, the word is vayadaber, which also means to say. But vayadaber is a stronger, more forceful language. Emor is a more gentle, more easygoing language. There are a number of instances in this difference found in the Torah. Now, why when it comes to the kohanim, to the, mitz to the mitzvot, to the commandments that the priests have, is this more gentle, more laid-back terminology used as opposed to the typical language of vayadaber? Mm -hmm. So Ramosha Feinstein says the following. He says the kohanim the priests are educators. Their role, ideally, is to serve as people more involved in, in the religion and to be teachers of the religion. If the teachers of the religion give off the impression that Judaism is a burden, it's something hard and difficult, nobody will want to buy in. If for the educators this is something that is maybe a lot of work and maybe expensive and maybe time-consuming, but something that's well worth the effort, and something that they find meaning in, and they can convey that meaning, they will then be effective teachers. You know, the Ramosha Feinstein was a very gentle personality. The only thing that would really get him upset was when people would groan about how difficult it is to be Jewish. And you're talking about a person who grew up under the thumb of, of the, the birth of communism in Russia and was on the run for his, you know, the first part of his life. Who was, who was living in a house, in a room sharing a room with other families, other, with multiple children. other families in one room. In a room. I, I, the I, communist I, I, government threw him out of his house. They taxed him. They made him as miserable as you could be. And I think I remember reading that, that, that he said his greatest insights were from that, that hardest time in his life where he had to concentrate in that little room. Yeah. So this is, but if you can convey this is something worth doing, this is something that is meaningful and important to you, you know, not just like, okay, I believe in God, but I got to keep all these rules then you'll be effective at getting other people to want to do it. If your father, for instance, is a musician, you know, carried it as a, oh, I got to play another gig. I got to make money to feed my kids. It's very unlikely that you would have wanted to pick up that in an instrument and learn how to play it. But if this is something that he enjoyed, and I, I'm assuming you can, hopefully you could fill me in if I'm right. We had the best time playing music. It's interesting you're saying that because we also played a lot of golf and that was frustrating and yet we did that anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I think music's more of a part of your life than golf is. Am I yeah, correct? Yeah, you are correct. It did stay. It had some staying right. So this is something that I think is really a lesson to all of us, you know, as parents, as friends, as just being part of any social network, that, you know, we have certain values and, and, and you know, ideas that we, that we partake in. And if we participate 
and those experiences or those ideas with like an energy, with a passion, with, with like a, treating it as a privilege, that will be something that people pick up on. And that will give an impression that this is something worth participating in. And that can make us the most effective educators possible. It's a tall order and an exciting one. And we should do our best for ourselves and for our kids. Thank you for tuning in too. So, what does Judaism say about? Thank you.